Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. Today, we're going to ask an unprecedented question. What's unprecedented about our era of American politics? And what is actually quite typical? And today we have a special guest, James. To help us answer that question, we have Matt Glassman, who's a friend of the pod, as Julia would say. And Julia is unable to be with us at this uh, for, for this episode. But he is uh, at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. He's a host of a podcast, Congress Two Beers In, which I have been a guest on. Everybody should listen to that episode. It's extraordinary. And he's spent several years, a decade maybe, at the Congressional Research Service? That's right. A decade? Yep. Wow. And then during that time, as he was at the Congressional Research Service, working on things like congressional operations, separation of powers, all kinds of interesting stuff that you talk about at home, he was detailed to a House committee. What House committee? House Appropriations, man. That's House the place to be. Appropriations. So we Power can- Power of the purse. A lot of, you saw how, it, how, it, how sausage is made. <laughs> I made it myself, yeah. So, mm, well, final. welcome. Well, good to be here. And I, uh, Phil and Julia's shoes is uh, not easy task, but uh, I'll go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Lee Drutman. I'm James Walner. I'm Matt Glassman. And uh, yeah, so so let's 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 get a let's get get started here. Are are we in a totally unprecedented time in American politics, Matt? I say no, no. Um, and uh, as as a broad cut answer, and I think the the first thing to say is you have to be really careful with the word unprecedented. Uh, that word is thrown around Washington and Capitol Hill like handing out candy. And 99.9% of the times you say it, it's just dead wrong on the facts. Uh, now, that's not what we're talking about, but I do think you want to be uh, a skeptic of anyone who brings up the word unprecedented for something going on in American politics. And uh, I think uh, we're in a set of dynamics that may be unusual or that we haven't seen in a while, but I don't think we're in a situation that's unprecedented the way most people mean it. Uh, I think when most people say unprecedented, they mean outlandish or dangerous or taking us on a path that's going to have uh, particularly dire consequences. And uh, that's all happened before in American politics, and it may or may not be happening now. Um, I do see strands of what's going on now as unusual in reference to anything anyone alive has seen. And I think this is one of the big issues with talking about unprecedented or current dynamics is that people all, all have these anchor points, these reference points. And uh, for most people in Washington right now, particularly for baby boomers or people who grew up in the wake of the 60s, that reference point is how politics worked here then. And I think the fact that politics works so differently now in Washington than it did in 1968 uh, leads a lot of people to believe that we are off in uncharted waters. Um, but I think the basic case I would make is that everyone's reference point, sort of the mid-60s and the climactic politics of then, uh, were the exception. And a lot of what's going on now is we're back to the rule. I mean, if you spend some time reading about what happened in the 60s and into the early 70s, and then you compare it to the conflict that ostensibly paralyzes us today, it is remarkable. It is remarkable how placid and tranquil our politics is today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one cut at it for sure. And, you know, when people say there's a lot of rage now or, you know, they kind of point at potential violence or actual violence in America now, um, to me, that is 
uh, sort of a naive view of American history when political violence has, uh, particularly in the lifetime of people still alive, been significantly higher than it is today, and certainly throughout the late 19th century, radically higher than it is today. Um, that when people say, oh, we got an unprecedented you know, politics and people are angry and this could get violent very quickly, well, I mean, it's been a lot more violent in, in the past. And so on, on that dimension, I think people just aren't, aren't thinking about it straight. But even more so, I think you talk to people about things like partisanship and they say, well, if we could just get back to the way it was and the way it was was somehow sort of the bipartisan coalition that crushed segregation, um, which is true and real and uh, something important to think about. But that coalition itself, that idea that you could have either a conservative coalition cross party or a liberal coalition cross party was really true for mostly a very short time period between the 1930s and 1970s. And uh, over the breadth of American history, uh, partisanship is kind of the rule, not the exception. That doesn't make it good. Uh, and it doesn't mean it has to sit well with us. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and change it. Um, but the idea that, you know, sort of a, a very partisan politics is somehow unprecedented, I, I, I find that more or less ridiculous. Well, I think there is something that's truly unprecedented about this era, and I think it's the the nationalization of American politics, that everything about politics is focused on Washington now. We, we used to have state and local parties in different state and local political cultures, and that diversity ha has all collapsed. So the parties have become much more nationalized, much more uh, unitary, and much more geographically separated now uh, than they ever once were. And, and I think that's that's something that's different, and, and I, I think poses a unique risk to the stability of American democracy. Let's, let's jump in there for a second. I just want to interject briefly. I mean, is Susan Collins, who just announced she's seeking re-election recently, is she going to be the same kind of Republican as, say, a Rand Paul? Or how do you explain the Roy Moore situation in Alabama, where the Alabama Republican Party privately probably wanted him not to run, uh, but it in public, they were behind him, even though the National Republican Party, to the extent we can call it that, was adamantly opposed to him running. Well, Susan Susan Collins' voting record is is uh, quite similar to Rand Paul's voting record. Now, that may be a function of, of agenda control in the Senate, which we could argue about. Uh, but, but even so, if we're arguing about agenda control, there is a reason that everybody in the Republican Party cedes the agenda to Mitch McConnell. I mean, in terms of the diversity of parties, uh, I mean, there's still some diversity. I mean, in a two-party system, the parties still have to be broad tent parties. But the amount of ideological uh, and, and stylistic diversity within the two parties is, I think, at a at a low, at a historical low. Yeah, and I think the the vertical integration is perhaps more important point here is that voter at the voter level, your choice for who you want representing you in your state legislature uh, is now more correlated with your party ID for national politics than than really ever before. And so, where once upon a time you may have voted Republican for the presidency. Democrat for Congress, uh, Republicans in the state legislature, and Democrats at the local level, that all seems to have collapsed uh, where party identification is now mapping elections for state assemblies onto how you approve of the president, which certainly seems to be um, not brand new. Obviously, there's been some of this in the past, but as Lee said, this is a tighter sort of uh, partisan control than we've seen. The thing, the other, the other thing I think that is maybe not unprecedented, but is new, is that you can take a lot of different dimensions of things that have come and go or ebbed and flowed and watch how they crash together. So we've had sort of 
polarized congressional parties before in the 19th century and sort of strong parties in that sense. And for the last uh, 75 to 100 years, we've now had an institutionally powerful presidency. We really haven't had both of those things at the same time. The last time the parties were this polarized or at least partisanship was this high, we had a weak presidency. And so putting the president, the executive at the top of a system this polarized uh, is something we haven't seen before. And that does concern me a little uh, from a separation of powers point of view. Um, strong parties in the late 19th century uh, were strong parties and they were rooted in Congress. Now strong parties are rooted in allegiance to a hierarchy where the president's at the top. And the implications for that, I think, are potentially wide. Yeah, well, the maybe. president is the party. Well, the president, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the other thing about the the, the high polarization of the uh, around 1900, which, well, certainly polarization is now higher in Congress, but it was, it hit a peak around the early 1900s. But Congress didn't do nearly as much. I mean, it was, it was a lot of log rolls around tariffs and, and post offices and spoils. Uh, so there, there, there were, I mean, there, there were basically no, there were only a few government agencies at that point. Most of, of, of the government regulations that we now know happened post-1960s. Uh, so yeah, certainly post-1930s. Before 1930s, just the federal government just didn't really do all that much. Regulated so, steamboats. Regulated steamboats, which, you know, obviously. Important. Huckleberry Finn. Yes. Every time you come across a steamboat, it's not looking good. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree and disagree with that. I think obviously that's correct that the federal government was involved in a smaller portion of economic life or individual citizens' lives. But I don't think that makes the issues of the late 19th century Congress was grappling with somehow less important uh, or unimportant relevant today. Certainly regulation of railroads. Yeah. Um, is a massive economic issue in a changing technological environment. And you can see a lot of parallels to things like that today. Uh, or trying to pass anti-lynching laws, right? These are you know, major issues having life or death effects for, for many Americans. And I don't, I, I don't see that as sort of less important because the federal government was smaller. There's, sometimes you can have this view of 19th century federal government as sort of patrolling the frontier and moving mail around. But I, I don't think that really... Um, and that, that really captures, you're sure, and, and, and raising taxes at custom houses and fighting over tariffs and, 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 and monetary policy. But I, I do think that that, first of all, those aren't little things either, right? That's, how you're going to fund the government and how you're going to manage a, a national bank is a big deal. I do think there's a tendency when we look back historically and try and get claims on politics that people make two mistakes. <laughs> um, the, the first mistake they make is they, I think they like to see uh, the past as uh, a simpler time. Um, as if people were less sophisticated about politics. Uh, but any amount of reading you do about you know, the antebellum era, is people were quite sophisticated about politics. And congressional politics in particular was just as strategic and in many cases just as uh, much hardball was played, if not more. Uh, and the same sort of sort of, so we have this sort of, you know, decline of our politics, Jeremiah, that people were more honest in the 19th century or, or more simple about it and less sophisticated in their strategic and thinking. There was more morality. There yeah. Was, and and I, I, I think that's probably backwards of anything, but certainly no different. What was uh, the whole uh, rift between Jackson, Calhoun and Van Buren? Wasn't it over whether or not their wives would receive this woman who was accused of having an affair with a married man. 
Oh, yeah, yes. the, the defense secretary. This is correct. Yeah, I, but, I mean, you know, you try and pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act in, in 1854, and this is the, you know, epitome of yeah. sort of, you know, what many people today would call a kind of scummy Washington politics. You're pulling out every stop, every patronage piece available, and every lowball thing you can find, whether it's women or liquor or threats. And, you know, sometimes people think to understand how the Civil War came about, you need a modern scholar who studied the data. But... Everybody knew what was going on, and their analysis of politics I don't think was any less sharp than we are today. They didn't have randomized surveys of voter behavior, uh, but they had sort of the 19th century of Clifford with that, and that was people who really understood congressional districts and really understood mass opinion um, through other means. So I think your comments just now really highlight why most people think today is unprecedented, at least to me. It's, but they think it's very dysfunctional, and I think any just casual look back will show that that's kind of the norm around here. But it's the gridlock that results from that dysfunction, the inability as they see it to be able to legislate, to do things. And they then blame that on polarization or partisanship, which is just another way of saying we've got too much conflict, too many people disagree with me. But I think if you look back, you will find, as you've just mentioned, that there's numerous points in time, whether or not it was a good idea or a bad idea, where Congress was able to overcome conflict on a much greater scale, if even of an existential nature, and resolve issues for however long and work. The federal government was able to work. And I'm wondering if there's a relationship between as our politics becomes more vertically integrated and national, it becomes less substantive. And are those two things helping each other? And if we had more conflict, if we have more conflict in Congress, is it, are the parties able to be as cohesive as we think they are? Well, it, it becomes one dimensional, right? So, I mean, if, if we, we get back to the, the dirty log roll politics uh, of an earlier era, that, that's multidimensional politics and that you can, you can find, you can disagree on one set of issues, but you can find compromise on another set of issues. And the fact that, that a lot of politics was local and pork barrel and distributive allows for that multidimensionality of bargaining. Hey, you still have that today. I mean, take the like you have a big spending bill, hypothetically speaking, where you have a, a rump group of legislators, say in the Senate, who want to stop it. And they want to go out of their way to, to try to highlight the, the differences, highlight the contradictions between the two parties so they can then at least win in the next election. The leadership will come to them and say, guys, if you do this, that's going to be really bad because we're not going to win in the next election. We're going to lose in the next election. And then the next party is going to come in and they're going to pass you know, something that causes the republic to fall into the ocean. And, that's, and so you get it's it's definitely multidimensional in the sense that you have all of these different they issues are invoked i should say that are then used to dissuade members from pushing their rights on the floor in the way they would have had no problem doing so in the 19th century see i i see it slightly differently and and i lay a lot of the blame on get out <laughs> just no. on i lay a lot of the blame on the early 20th century progressives and the progressive historians who love them who I think largely invented this myth of how a democracy is supposed to operate sort of the fairy tale myth. If you read like democracy for realists, right? They call it the fairy tale where voters inform themselves and they pick candidates who make promises on policy grounds. And like, it's just not how it's ever operated. So this sort of idea of, of rational independent yeah. voters, just, just taking in all this information and then making the right 
in quotes. To yeah, say and, and I think certainly the the sort of chattering class in Washington or the intellectual class in the United States who, who have been raised on this fairy tale and maybe people who aren't involved in politics but are at the level where they're paying attention to it, that's the normative goal they have for democracy is right. some sort of high-minded deliberative ideal. And it's just not in practice how democracy has ever worked. And, and, and that would be okay, except that they are very resistant to the idea of power politics, of rough and tumble interests, literally battering it out um, with, you know, speeches that are just nonsense speeches and rationalizations in defense of interests, just trying to win. But this gets to a point that I've made repeatedly on this podcast in past episodes where, and I think you see it a little bit before the progressives, but certainly with the progressives as well. And it's on both sides of the aisle now. It's on both liberals and uh, conservatives, progressives and conservatives, where this idea that politics is about progress to a promised land. It becomes a production process with a beginning and an end point. And everything then becomes a means to an end to get there versus an activity in which you participate. And those are two very, very different things. If it's an activity in which you participate, you go to Congress and you look around for leverage and you try to win and you grapple and then you kind of whatever you get, you get. And you, nobody ever wins everything because it is what it is. I mean, you're not supposed to win everything. You're supposed to get half a lift. That half a lift is like outstanding. And today in, in the free politics, right? So, but we, we are unable to do that. And so we, we, we want to control the factory. So we have these nationalized parties so we can win elections. But then when, ironically, when we're in control of the factory today, we can't produce anything. So I, I want to go back and, and dig down on this. Politics used to be a lot more rough and tumble yeah, and, and like this idea that we've had this decline of civility, this decline of norms, and that's the problem. But Matt, you're you're taking us back to a time in which civility and politics just like nobody thought about putting them together. Really, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's right. I I think so. You know, one example I always give people of this, and it doesn't mean a modern norm of civility is bad, or it, it hasn't been norm. But you know, this idea that things are breaking down now into a politics that is sort of falling off a cliff as opposed to maybe just returning to a prior instance of American democracy. American democracy existed in a lot of different forms. Yes. Um, and if you told someone today that when you go to vote, there are going to be all sorts of drunks around the poll, there's going to be bands playing fist fights, and people are going to try and physically prevent you from voting, right? You would say, well, that's out of bounds. But that's the entire 19th century in the cities. Right. And that doesn't mean it was perfect. It doesn't mean it was good, but it was what we largely consider to be a functioning bounded democracy. Obviously, it was excluding a lot of people, but the actual practice of it seemed to be working OK, or at least it's a minimum standard uh, for the times. And so sort of when people see things that are happening now uh, that are uncivil. Uh, and that can be anything from physical altercations on, on the one end, all the way up to sort of power plays by legislatures. We saw this in, in states, in North Carolina and Wisconsin. You see these moves by Republican legislatures, Michigan too, to sort of reduce the power of the governorship on the way out as they're about to lose it. And that is something that probably doesn't fit the fairytale idea of democracy. And I would go ahead and say that's probably normatively not ideal for how we should run. Uh, but it's also not anything new. This has been going on in state legislatures for decades uh, on both sides. And, you know, stripping a statewide official of power on his way out uh, as the other party's about to take it is about sort of the oldest play in the book in machine politics. Uh, you fight like dog to keep power. And as soon as you lose it, you try and hamstring the other side when they come in. And this is sort of emblematic of how uh, I think people on both sides, conservatives and liberals, have misread 
current politics. One thing that always struck me as funny, I worked in the New York State Legislature, and uh, I came to Washington and looked around Congress, and it's like, oh, man, this is the most genteel place ever. They're so nice <laughs> to each other. Like, no one really takes the gloves off. Um, and and I think a lot of people miss that here in D.C., and D.C. is starting perhaps to get a little bit more of that sort of state-level hardball. But state politics is an absolute bloodbath uh, compared to a lot of what you see in Congress. Congress is utterly professionalized. It's controlled. Um, well, that's one way to put it. But, I, you know, when when I worked in the New York State Legislature, like if you were in the majority in the Senate, you got like five office staffers and as many parking passes as you want. If you're in the minority, you've got maybe one staffer and zero parking passes. And like that's not like hardball, like legislatively and producing policy, but that's just mean. It's just a banana republic to like do that to the minority. And, we, you know, you see minorities complain in Congress. And it's like they're, they're getting treated beautifully here compared to they are in most, you know, in Trenton or in Albany or in Harrisburg or in Providence or in Boston. Uh, um, and so... I, I, you know, that doesn't doesn't mean things aren't worse here than they were 10 years ago. Maybe they are. It doesn't mean things aren't headed a bad direction. But we have to be careful when we make these claims about how bad things actually are in terms of taking a democracy and making it non-functional. Well, I think you see a lot of the same things happening in the late 50s, early 60s, certainly in the Senate. We remember the the Senate type the guy who is very polite and waits his turn to speak and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But eventually the outsider becomes an insider. Eventually you change the way this institution operates. And I think it's important to take a step back and consider why you have uncivil behavior or norm breaking behavior. And to me, it's not so much norm breaking, but norm formation that I find very interesting. And if you come into an organization, any organization, and people don't agree with you there, you have one option. That's to go outside and what I call legislate from a position of weakness. It's is what literally every major reform movement in American history has done. And today we have this notion that if you do that, it's somehow the end of the world, that it's going to blow up the Congress and that we can't keep going like this. And that's why we're so unprecedented. Yeah, when in reality, I you know it's it may be on it may not be great for the people there. It may create a little bit more uncertainty. It may be it may not even yield great policy in the end. But it but there's nothing fundamentally bad or unprecedented about it. Yeah. See, I I take that. I agree with that, and I think the same thing is true at the systemic level. There's lots of different structures of democracy our Constitution could have. I'll give you an easy example. The Speaker in the Constitution, all it says is that the House shall choose their Speaker. And that Speaker could have ended up like the British Speaker, a nonpartisan figure, and we could have sort of a majority leader in the House. But it didn't end up that way. The Speaker is now a partisan leader of the House, and, and, and that's fine. But the Constitution doesn't envision a specific formation of these institutions. It just puts them out there. And... And some will be better than others. And if you think uh, institutional changes uh, a certain direction are important, go ahead and fight for them. What I strongly disagree with is people who uh, think any changes to the institutional structure of American politics is either bad or dangerous. Uh, that somehow we've there, there was one sort of normatively ideal system. We had it or we were close to it and that you're trying to mess with it, be it Trump or sort of liberal Democrats, uh, that somehow that is either out of bounds or inherently dangerous. Right. Well, if you're in a position of power, presumably the status quo is something you like. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And so you're exactly. going to try to delegitimize exactly. everybody but who the, tries but to But the history of, of American democracy is the history of changing power structures Absolutely. and changing rules to But to what I find so remarkable and so- upset those power structures. Sorry to interrupt, Lee. What I find so remarkable and so, un I actually 
find this unprecedented, is that today everyone seems to be upset with the status quo. Does it, do you know anybody who likes the status quo? No. I, mean, uh, I can think of some cynical answers, but at the end yeah. of the day, it's a large kind of, if you think about like groups and you think about politics the way the framers did, or just most academics do, like, I mean. It's, so it's, so that suggests that we are on the verge of a new era of reform. The, but yet we are now, but we all use the tactics of people who love the status quo to delegitimize the opposition from trying to change it. So we just got to wake up. Which means that we've basically taken away politics. We've We've taken away our ability to do politics. I mean, I don't think it's inherently bad that the individual players in the market like don't believe in the system. I, we don't, you know, the individual firms competing don't need to believe in the free market for it to work. They can be out there trying to destroy each other, and indeed they are. Uh, Microsoft and, and Google and whoever else are trying to destroy each other. The market works because they can't destroy each other, and the systemic value of it is to people who are not sort of participants in that. So I don't particularly mind but, if politicians are trying to destroy each other or factions are trying to destroy each other. Uh, we have it, James Madison here with us, guys. Uh, but but I mean, with We're it, very it, lucky it, listeners to, to take that market metaphor for. I mean, there is some superstructure antitrust regulation, a ruler that, sure. that yes. prevents there, Microsoft from taking yes. over everything. Yes, uh, there's and, a and there's so a it, ruler it ensures that there is some dynamic competition to prevent oligopoly. And you or can monopoly. break the superstructure too. Yeah. The superstructure is not inviolable. Right. But I don't think it requires buy-in from every participant. Um, that sort of these ideals that you're espousing, James, about 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 conflict and creating new structures, uh, they don't have to buy into those for them to operate. It can operate without them. So, so I think in, in terms of how our system operates today and how we see politics today, I do think it's unprecedented for that very reason. And, I, and I'm not sure where where we go from there. I mean, if if you're thinking about the the, the dysfunction we have, the problems we have, there's no shortage of reforms out there on how to make things better. But what do you think? What do you, what's your answer? Well, uh, so, I mean, here here's something that is, I think, unique about this period is that the two parties are quite balanced at a national level and have been for almost 30 years. So that if the Democrats had unified control, dominant control, they would change a bunch of things. If the Republicans had unified control, they would change a bunch of things that would that would help them. And and you see that happening in the, at the state level. But because neither party has the power to change the system to preserve its power, things are 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 stuck, I think. Uh, the the other thing, uh, and I want to get your guys' thought on this, it, uh, I hear a lot about what's unprecedented about this era, it is disinformation, media echo chambers, just two sides that have completely different epistemologies, completely different sets of facts. I think we've had, I mean, I mean the norm in the U.S. has been partisan press, not not nonpartisan press, but the extent to which the, the, the streams are truly bifurcated rather than just just incredibly diverse. Yeah, I mean, I, so I have mixed feelings about that because this is one of the first ways in which I feel very old is that the media environment sort of terrifies me because I grew up, uh, as you guys did, uh, with sort of the media environment of the post-war era, which was sort of uh, consolidated television networks and independent newspapers that strove for what they called the neutrality and that, you know, a, a lot of nodes of information, but a limited set of nodes of information. And the modern media environment... Uh, which is nothing to my children. They don't think anything of it. Uh, is sort of scary to me. It seems it does seem like there's there's no such thing as celebrity anymore, right? There's no common sort of heroes. There's it just it's all <clears throat> separated. But 
That said, I do think that all of the technological developments in communication have caused the same problem for people. You can read about, you can read about, you know, them getting nervous in the 1830s about mass media affecting elections and the depersonalization of campaigns and uh, same thing with radio and with television. So I'm not sure it's a damning issue, but it certainly feels weird to me. The partisan press is is usually what I tell people about when they complain about the current situation about Fox News or MSNBC is that like most of American history operated on this. And again, you're going back to the fairy tale where people believe you have to have some sort of common set of information in order to conduct a legitimate democratic politics. But to say that is just to delegitimize 150 years of American history, essentially. Yeah, I'm not sure how I I agree with you. Although I do think we're in the presence of a celebrity here who has a new book coming, a new book out, I should say, <laughs> Lee Drutman. But with that being said, I'm not Twitter, for instance. You would assume that it would be destabilizing. But at the same time, if you take the fundamental logic of, of say, Madison and Federalist 10 and this idea of conflict and uh, giving people a voice, it certainly seems like it aligns with that. And I'm not sure how I reconcile those two things because I agree. I am. I, I look at it as like, how does this all work if people can't agree on what color the sky is? And then part of me says, well, maybe they just walk outside and look up at the sky and say it's blue. Right. I mean, you kind of you have to have a process. You have to have a debate where people can fight about these things and the bad will fall off and the good will rise up, hopefully. Well, so, I mean, I, I, to, to, to Matt's point, like we've had revolutions in communications technology throughout our history. And you know, in fact, in each era of, of communications technology revolution, We've also had an era of, of democratic reform. The, the, the pamphlets of the 1770s led to the revolution, the rise of the mass uh, circulation newspapers was accompanied Jacksonian democracy, the rise of radio accompanied, uh, I guess that was a little later than the progressive era, but that was the mass circulation magazines, and then the rise of television, civil rights. So <clears throat> in, in each of those eras, you have new new voices, new new narratives coming forward. And I think we're seeing this again in social uh, on social media. We wouldn't have Black Lives Matter. We wouldn't have Me Too without social media, and that is upending the power structure and causing some challenge. But but it's not I, leading to the same kind of well, policy change it, it and may. reform. It may. It may. It it's may. Still I early. think I think it will. I mean, the the, the danger I, I see is is in the in the nationalization of the bifurcation that in earlier eras. You, you had dispersion, but you didn't have the same binary bifurcation that you had multi-dimensional conflict. So the progressives, that was a cross-cutting dimension. Civil rights, that was a cross-cutting dimension. Jacksonian democracy, that was, I think, a, a cross-cutting dimension to some extent because you had basically had one party, party politics before that. Uh, but now I don't see what the cross-cutting dimension is. I Health just care? No. Immigration? No. No. Yeah. You th- I mean, it seems to me that the parties don't agree with one another internally on those issues. But they, but but Trade, on, the, on the spectrum, there's not foreign policy. Th- there's not orthogonal conflicts. It's, because it's there are along, no conflicts. It's all along a spectrum. But that's because there are no conflicts. It's all a, well. That's because it's all along a one-dimensional spectrum. Matt. Uh, well, I mean, I always, I always see, and maybe, maybe this is becoming old and not true, but I don't see a lot of party cohesionists around trade at all. Right. And he, that, that seems to me to have traditionally cut across the parties and continues to cut across the parties where, you know, uh, business conservatives are aligned with sort of multiculturalists on the left and labor is aligned with sort of uh, racist on the right. 
uh, for both uh, immigration and and uh, sort of um, nationalist trade policies. Um, but that I you know I don't know if the existence of a lot of cross cutting issues is inherently um, going to be sort of the valve of the outlet valve when uh, party line control from hierarchical structures, be it the presidency or congressional leaders, seems to be overcoming these things yeah. in some ways. Um, it, it, if if you're in a party and you feel so compelled to vote with a party that your position on those issues uh, ceases to be something that you can control anymore and you'll just lose your election, that's, you know, you may dissent, but if you're not willing to fight because you're scared of what happens to you at the party, it doesn't really matter if you're dissenting ideologically. Yeah, and that's and that's why you don't see that dissent. So, right, and I and I would suggest that one of the reasons why politics are so nationalized or centralized is precisely because we're avoiding these issues that they are divided on so deeply, I believe. But with that being said, what are the solutions? Lee, your book... We need to have a thousand parties. How many parties? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe four to six. Four to six. I, I mean, look. Then you would bring back that diversity, yeah. right? I mean, there, there is. I mean, I, I agree with you that there's more diversity within the Democratic Party. There's more diversity within the Republican Party. There's more diversity in urban America than we see. There's more diversity in rural America than we see. But when you have a two-party system with single-member districts, you're, you're censoring a lot of that diversity. And to channel Madison, it, it's that diversity that that powers democracy. Uh, because you have to build coalitions and you have to agree and you have to disagree and you have to, to get legitimacy. In, in our binary political system, uh, the, these structures of top-down leadership, we've got to win the next election, we've got to rally behind our president, continue to perpetuate because both sides are trying to get this elusive, narrow majority. And there's no obvious resolution to that, just, in, just an escalation of constitutional hardball uh, until you know, we lose a sense of shared legitimacy. And then, you know, then, then I, I think we don't have something like our democracy yeah, anymore. I, then we're back in the 1830s. But, well, I, but I, I do think that, you know, I, I agree with Lee, um, perhaps not in the particulars, but in the spirit. And it, this is another critique I have about how a lot of people think about history is that they're far too forgiving to the founders and far too reliant on the founders as sort of your guideposts, at least rhetorically. And I think for some people actually intellectually and in how you should think about American democracy today, um, the American Constitution is really old. Yeah. And it existed prior to the onset of sort of the rest of Western democracy, where the basis is sort of universal adult suffrage and parties organizing political society. Uh, we, we, we predate all that. And so to the degree that it's old like that, there's a lot of it that if not archaic, certainly doesn't meet sort of the modern standard of how a democracy should be bedrocked. And therefore, that doesn't mean scrap our system, but it does make me really cautious about appeals to founders and this reliance on the idea that the 1787 constitution as implemented in the 19th century should be the basis of how it's implemented now. Geography is the most obvious problem with the constitution. It's extremely reliant on geography when geography has ceased to be uh, sort of the key definer for anyone of their lives. And that's why reforms like, you know, the ones Lee proposes, like proportional representation and things like that, uh, have a lot of appeal because it takes something in the Constitution that's really an 18th century idea and says, you know what, maybe that's an idea whose time has passed. 
Well, the, fr the framers, I mean, when they were designing the Constitution, they didn't discuss electoral systems because there was one electoral system at the time, plurality elections, which they unthinkingly imported. I mean, you didn't have proportional representation. Uh, it wasn't developed until the, the mid-19th century. It wasn't implemented until 1899 in Belgium's first country to, to do it. So, I mean, we've learned, uh, you know, I mean, the, the framers were, you know, to, to appeal to the framers for a second, they were big believers in political science, and they thought that they were working with the most contemporary political science of the time, which they were, but we've had a lot more and I think experience. We want to, then. to the extent that we are, either it is unprecedented or it is not. If if what's happening now is dysfunctional, the question is how do you get beyond that? And I think thinking like the framers would probably help. I mean, to Matt's point, I mean, America's done some extraordinary things. And if you look back at the sweep of our history and the amount of violence in our history, because you have two options on how to make collective decisions. You have violent conflict and you have political conflict. And they're not a continuum. They're two different systems. They're two different ways of thinking and going about doing things. And we have operated, I mean, they've overlapped every now and then, but for the most part, the amount of stuff that we have done in this country Yes, the circle of people involved in politics and that were equal started off very small at first, but it got larger and larger and larger, and it's large today, and it'll probably get larger tomorrow. But the idea is that it got larger, and the question is why, and how did these reforms in the past happen, and why aren't they happening now? Why aren't reforms to the system happening now when they were happening in the past? And I suspect it's because we no longer think about politics like our framers did. One thing the Constitution, I think, did get right. One thing that they, that I find, I'm not sure we can improve on. I mean, I certainly am open to it, is the idea of how do you protect the space in which politics occurs? That's the fundamental thing, because once you have the space, then you can have these arguments, then you can have these debates, then you can have your partisan press out there, you know, printing broadsides trying to win or your goons going around picking up people and making sure they don't vote or they do vote, whatever the case may be. But all of that is premised on the idea that you have a space where politics can occur. So in our system and the Constitution does that unlike anything that mankind has ever seen before. So for me, you know, one and I, I agree with that one one space that the framers put in place has been well used in American history is the federalism system. Too many people now are striving for nationwide political reform from the top down, either by Congress or by the courts uh, in Washington. But if you're going to achieve sort of these longstanding desired changes or just tinker with stuff, the states are a much better place to do it. It's more achievable. Uh, it lets you make mistakes and not collapse the country. And so whether it's things like ballot initiatives in the early 20th century, which I think by and large have been seen negatively going forward by political scientists to rank choice voting in Maine. Um, the ability to tinker at the state level is both more achievable for reform movements, uh, particularly when you have sort of localized interest in it and really a good signpost for whether something works. Uh, yeah. People look at the Constitution. It's like, you know, voting rights for women didn't come about because we amended the Constitution. It came about because of hard work in individual states over decades uh, before that happened yeah. at the national level. And, and a lot of a lot of losses and a lot of setbacks before. It's worse before. than baseball politics yeah well, it is. I, well baseball's so, kind of boring um if you have in closing here because i think we're running uh we're running short on time but if you had one reform or one way to think about evaluating reforms what would it be well i i would get a bunch of states to switch to proportional representation for their state legislature matt uh 
Yeah, I, I might. Yeah, I might have states just tinker with something like multi-member districts. And I think mine is more on the evaluative side, which is if you're out there looking at reforms that people have proposed, the question we should be asking ourselves is: Will this reform help people act more, or will it make it harder for them to act? Because we right now need more action in our. And I think I think we're politics. we're stuck, right? Will will it will it un un unstuck unstick un unstick our politics and. Un- Hmm. Well, on that note, yeah. So, let's quick quick takeaway. I, mean, I think what so what's what's unprecedented? What's not unprecedented? I mean, it seems like we we largely agree that the, the the sort of decline of civility is is overrated, and that our politics have always been rough and tumble, and that's and that's not something to worry about. Yeah, I right. mean, I, go ahead, James. What I was just going to say that what I find what what again what I think is unprecedented is the the way we think about politics today, the way we approach politics and how we conduct it, and it makes everything else possible. And I think that's something that we haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah the, the, the way that we're stuck in this in this sort of zero-sum trench warfare for, for power, over when, non-zero-sum when, nobody can... Yeah. I mean, to, to me, the unprecedented thing is the combination of two things that aren't unprecedented. It's the alignment of polarized parties under a powerful presidency. Yeah. And nationalized politics. Yes. Truly, truly nationalized politics. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fabulous discussion. It's Thanks been tremendous. We hope to have you back. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.